Good morning. It is me again. <laughs> You're listening to the Stream of Random podcast, whether you want to or not. It is 7.45 on Election Day. No, the day before Election Day. Election Eve, Monday the 2nd of November. And you've tuned in to the stream of random where we're not going to talk about the election. Because we want to talk about some some things in the mind today. And I want to recap my thoughts on meaning, communication, and art. And it is windy, and it was snowing last night, and uh, 32 degrees is freezing. It's literally freezing out. Now that the sun is out, I can actually take a different route instead of just going the same way all the time. I don't like um, exploring new territories in the dark when I can't see nothing. We only have an hour for today's podcast before I have to go to work at 9. I should be back at 8.45. So at 7.15, we will turn around and come back. I mean, 8.15. So we'll walk for half an hour in one direction, half an hour in the other direction. Some beautiful houses here in in, uh, an undisclosed location. You can probably figure out where it is. It ain't hard. Um, But I don't need to make it easy on you. So... I think we're close to a theory of of the mind, including the right and left brain, as the um, creative and the analytical, the symbolic and the aesthetic side of perception as pairs. And we've also talked about the actual communication between the two as being something that is slow and difficult. For the logical mind to go from one logical idea to the other, it's going to be relatively fast. Or for the creative mind to go from one creative concept to the other, it'll be fast. But to transfer the information from one part to the other... That'll be a slower process that actually has to bridge the gap, which is the split between the brain. It has to go down to, I guess, a lower part, the bus system, to the address space 
the hall of many doors. And, um, I guess we're going to uh, think about that a little bit longer. What that might be. But the current theory is, the current idea that I'm working on, is that we have instructions being passed for the construction of sensory or imaginatory creative elements. And then we have implications or analogies that arise from those. Those are the creative-creative connections. So I present a symbol to you and then the brain will respond with associated symbols on the creative level. Or we present a logical idea to you and the brain will respond with a logical connection. So it will trigger, we're going to trigger different responses by presenting different inputs or instructions. And we could see the presenting of a symbol as the instruction, please find an associated idea. So some parts of the brain, if you just present them with a key, they'll automatically look up a value. So the instruction is implied. But we're gonna make it explicit. Boy, walking uphill here. Now if we walk up the hill, It'll take longer so we can subtract the minutes to get back by a percentage and that percentage has to do with the angle and I think it's the sine function which will tell you the height that you walk the cosinus will tell you the distance if you're walking straight up 90 degrees it'll be like a 0 x y is 1 so you're going straight up you're not making any distance boy if you hear me breathing heavy this is quite the hill adjust my microphone so it's not directly getting breathed into um so that's what I've been thinking about a lot and um, we have we talked about different forms of mental images that we can construct. And um, interact with. Like a game. 
we could fly around and look at them from different sides. And that's really like the idea with the blender. So we're constructing 3D models and rendering images. But that requires that we introduce the idea of the director, the artist who's choosing the scene, the perspective, the composition of the image, all these other things that make up photography, cinematography, to tell a story. And that story has to be pleasing to all parts of the mind for it to harmonize. Because if you just want to present a mathematical idea, you could just use minimalistic mathematical notation. You see? But not everyone, and especially me, is really hip to all that mathematical notation. I struggle with it. I also like to see my pretty pictures and big letters and symbols for easy um, easy consumption. big box of box of duplos. That's pretty cool. Let's come get that. So So the idea of the blender is kind of like preparing things for the right brain. And those choices made, those key choices made in the setting up of the image, choosing of all that, that's also creative process. Um, <clears throat> at a higher level. So I'm assuming that we have some kind of abstract creative process as well, or hidden layers for the, for the right brain, or left brain, no, the right brain, the creative side. So we're going to have to um, think about this some more, and develop higher levels of creativity, I mean even on music level. My wife is flying at us quite the high level of music and she's thinking about musical ideas on a very high level. And I wonder at what point does that actually become a joined harmonic between the uh, right and the left or whole brain holistic experience. Um, using some kind of harmonic or harmony idea. 
and um, <clears throat> maybe we're going to uh, get there someday. So, you know, we're not going to go too crazy about this right and left idea, but I think my idea, my insight, that there's more to the symbol, to the artifact, the art, which is the right brain. So, I mean, the left brain, right brain, and the dyslexic guy podcasting, just confusing the hell out of everyone. What was it? Stop the hammering! Enough already. <clears throat> well, that's what I wanted to talk about. <clears throat> it's cold. There's some really old barns here. American Legion Post. They have quite the compound. Kind of like a clubhouse. So The idea appeared to me much better in my dream this morning. It's hard to put into words. And uh, this is kind of getting into the um, barrier of communication where we have some idea. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, um, a uh, symbolic idea in that respect that it's a put into words we could have an intuition idea or an idea of pictures or sequence of pictures or relationships we could have all types of ideas um, that we want to put into express in our art which is the podcast which is a piece of paper which is a document or a movie um, and we could struggle as an artist to try and find the forms to capture and transport those ideas. And that's the same as a programmer. You have an idea and you want to capture it with symbols or a carrier system that carries. Now we're going up a huge hill here again. to uh, transport an idea, you have to package it up, <clears throat> and um, dreams are a great example of super high fidelity ideas, feelings, experiences, that are not accessible to our waking mind all the time. A lot of time we forget them. 
yeah. I think we put down some good stuff. So far, maybe not the best form. And, um, well, but now we can actually, with this theory that we've put forward, we can actually develop our introspector theory, which is that people have ideas that are encoded in programs or in code or words or pictures and these are carried in computer systems I mean the simplest idea is a picture of Mona Lisa right like that could be carried in a computer system but we don't know exactly what the lady's smiling about right we don't have knowledge we're just carrying it we can carry the whole Wikipedia article in the Mona Lisa but um, we still don't know for sure so there you have the computer as a carrier now for a computing program that's actually executed and actually does something you know that something that it does could just be to paint Mona Lisa and then we're back at the original problem where we don't know exactly what the message is so we'll never um, be able to fully define what the message is in all cases. We talked about cryptography. You know, let's just consider Mona Lisa to be a cryptographic function, and we don't have the key. The key is lost. But it is aesthetically pleasing. And people have studied it for generations, but they don't know for sure everything. Now, on the other side of it, we might have full knowledge of everything, like the compiler compiling itself, and those fun things, like where we know um, it's a closed world, we know exactly what each piece means and what it's used for. At least we can resolve it down to some form of computation. We can map that onto some model. Mm, we could paint some picture of it, but in the end, it's all just numbers. We could show relationships between these numbers, self-similarities. I'm going uphill again. So we can do all that. But in the end, the computer can't, can't
contain the meaning. The meaning is going to be created when the instructions are presented to the human for interpretation to construct some mental representation that evokes some reaction, some subconscious reaction, some sensory experience. And we could say that is the meaning. Or it could be simpler than that. You might say, I just want to know how much I have to pay. Right? How much do I owe? So in the checkout, I don't want to have a sensory experience. I just want to know what the total is. I saw this Burroughs calculating machine the other day in the antique shop. It's like you could type in all these numbers and calculate. And they had really nice keys. It was very pleasant to touch. Just imagining how many people were typing in numbers into that thing. be the function and then you have a mechanical machine a mechanical function and the code is in mechanics in levers and screws and pins and automatons little bits of metal like a clock and the clock has no idea what time it is little bits of metal don't know the time the time is interpreted by the person I mean, sure, the clock could tell you if the alarm's going to go off. And at some point, it does know something. It's encoded somehow in some weird way. The clockmaker might think that the clock knows the time. But it doesn't actually know the time, just as like the computer doesn't know what it's calculating. And now when we approach the human, we can experience these things. We can follow the instructions to create an experience and read a story. And if we watch a movie, is not watching a movie just following the instructions to create an experience internally? You know, you see a pretty face and you feel something or you react to it and isn't that an instruction of some kind to present that face to you at least for the cameraman the actor but in the end it appears in front of you so it's an instruction to your brain your eyes your whole body in some way so the movie is really could be seen as a set of instructions as well for the creation of a sensory experience 
But a flower, isn't that just a genetic code to create a sensory experience for humans or bees? The phenotype, the expression of the genetic sequence, an RNA, that not just a code an instruction for presenting something and then when we get into the idea of the imposter you have the other the one that looks like the other you have the chameleon you have the one bog that looks like a plant and is the plant the bug that looks like the plant, isn't that the instruction to the eyes of the bird to <clears throat> create the image of the plant? But it's lying. So there we get into the lie, the deception, the war, the conflict between genotypes and expressions of genotypes. Life as an expression of a genotype. The eternal conflict that is life. And the hacking of the mind. I mean, even of the animals. We don't even need a human mind for this. And I'm wondering if we could have plants that deceive other plants by sending out signals. And we're going to study this further, and we're going to see that this one parasitic plant deceives another plant by um, faking some signal that was intended for interpretation. And um, if we get into that level, at what point is it automatons? Good morning. At what point are these things automatic? Where they are plants or some kind of hard-coded response? And at what point are they neuroflexible? So this kind of gets into the question of flexibility and learning. Um, do you have to adapt through mutation? Or do you adapt through uh, a change in your behavior? And let's call that a mimetic, a meme mutation, as opposed to a gene mutation. Or is it a even a strategy, like a chess player. I mean, I guess that is a mimetic mutation, or is that an adaptive behavior to begin with? Dynamic behavior with the warrior outthinking his opponent, with the Oda 
observe, orient, decide, and act loop. Whoever has the tightest loop. And they say you have to train and train and train. So are we building neural networks that are focused on adaption, adaptive behavior, as a survival instinct? Speaking of survival instincts, let's check the time. Let's check the recording. Okay, 28 minutes. 8.12, we're going to start heading back. Three thousand steps. Well, those were heavy steps. Let me tell you, that white, white, white was not easy. Those three thousand steps going up these hills. So I earned every one of them. In terms of healthiness, I think walking up the hill is going to even be better for you than just walking on flat surfaces. So we have half an hour to get back and I'm going to talk for half an hour more and I'm going to let you go for today. My dear listener, but I think we have the theory now. I think we have our theory of everything and how this all ties in with the code You know, and if the computer program could produce a picture of an insect to fool the cat, and you see the cat, like, you know, attacking the screen, then that could be a video of a mouse running around or a bug. Or what if that was an adaptive behavior that recognized the movements of the cat? And then, uh, reacted to it for more realistic realism. But I think we'll see that these fixed points, these reflective parts of coding that we talk about, that they're actually something unique and special. In the uh, world of computing, certain reflective and it really is like a reflection because you have one point over here and it's reflected over there a mirror system that mirrors the um, the input And there's all types of interesting, reflective uh, things you can do in computing, useful. And a lot of it is like interactive inspection, reflection. So that's kind of where we want to go. Self-describing, reflective systems. And this is what we were talking about with the blender.
that all ties in together. So, reflection as a function of mapping the input onto an output that is similar in some way. Similar but adding in a perspective, a flavor, a viewpoint. But then that is a, a choice made by the, the director, by the, by the producer, or for the purposes of the usage of that program, and that every perspective matches everyone else's. And this is kind of where we get into the hegemony or the you know, the developer as like the person who knows everything about that program at the time that they're writing it. And um, how can we share those insights? You know, live coding, video coding of why of when it was created and the guy describing it maybe um we should try some live coding as part of this now the thing with the live coding and i guess it's going to be just like these walks is that the live coding really drags out and you see people making mistakes and trying things out and searching it's not all straightforward just execution of a thought-out plan. It's also discovering it. And, um... I guess that's also what uh, is happening here. So I think we're gonna try and move into not just live drawing, but live coding um, for this podcast. And we're gonna actually... uh, write out some code and execute it as part of the podcast with a video. But this also gets into the question of how do we capture the screen? Is it a video or is it a high definition recording of the symbols? You know, is it just a screen capture, rendering in bits or something more? And I guess for the beginning it can be a screen capture. And I guess I could do it on my phone even. Um, I gotta go find that Bluetooth keyboard. But I'm able to type into the uh, keyboard on the phone. And if we plan it out right. Well, I got new, my new memory chip at least. So we can do some uh, live Haskell coding on the phone, on the road, and record it at the same time. Could be fun. Oh yeah, we got now we got the library uh, video system for sharing, and I'm going to put some invite codes to get some points for library because you can earn money by inviting people and I guess you earn money 
by they try and get people to watch videos and they give you some coins that you can watch videos but not too much if you binge watch I guess you're gonna use up your coins but it's kind of a cool system to put value on things good morning kind of an interesting idea and um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is kind of getting into the question of, finally, we can start answering these questions about the aesthetics and meaning of different representations. So you have different structures, and I'm talking about C structures, or C++ structures, in the compiler, that are different forms of representation of your program. You've got different compilers, you've got different systems maybe representing the same thing. And people make decisions on how to represent them, the same thing. So you have different encodings of data and encoding functions of the same exact inputs. Even different versions of the compiler can have different representations of the same inputs gives them meaning so we can define the meaning by the input and I guess it kind of gets into the aesthetics this gets into the aesthetics of how it's encoded how beautiful or not beautiful those representations are I guess we can measure them in terms of memory usage CPU usage runtime but after a certain point there's going to be, be no significant difference between one implementation and another, except the beauty function or the aesthetics function, which cannot be actually um, defined, I think. And I guess you materialists will say, well, eventually we can train a machine learning system to learn the aesthetics and the biases of some people, sure. We can learn those biases and we can approach, we can get closer to, to them. But to actually, if it's an adaptive function that changes over time, like we talked about, if it's an actual conflict, an escalation of um, thought, and a conflict between the a dialectic between the, um, I don't know, the computer builders and the software builders, between the hackers and the uh, server administrators, dialectic between the haves and the have-nots, the owners of the business and the workers for the business. If we have some kind of conflict, it's a long-standing one, like Marx describes, or Hegel with his dialectic analysis synthesis, was it? Thesis, antithesis, and 
synthesis. And we have this process going on of conflict. Well, then, over time, that will change. And we're not going to have a computer system that is going to really solve that problem. Because it would have to anticipate the human mind and the creativity of it. Um, and let's just say that's going to be a very difficult thing to do, hopefully, for a long time. Alright, well with that, I leave you, and I wish you a great day. This is Hacker Mike out.